You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, church. If uh, something that Pastor Tarek said really resonated with you, or maybe it's the first time you've ever heard of the persecuted church, or um, or even during that prayer, if something happened like, "Wow, I, I was never interested like I am right now," uh, you can just Google or uh, "Voice of the Martyrs," and and through there is a portal into all kinds of stories and ways you can be praying. You can subscribe to a newsletter that talks about who to pray for and what's going on in what country and um, and that sort of thing. So. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, if you can raise your hand and we'll get one into your hands. Um, we'll be skipping around a little bit in chapter 14. I won't be reading the whole chapter. So it might be easier if you had a, uh, a Bible in your hand to follow along. Um, they're also free, so take them home um, as well. Uh, let me start by saying this. Today will not be weird, okay? <laughs> Which I know automatically makes it weird. But uh, it won't be weird today. Uh, the, the message, the sermon, the whatever I've kind of prepared this morning is really more prepared to launch us into something. Um, there's some more people with their hands up on this side if, if there's any ushers on the, that side of the room. I don't know, left, right, left? Um, the sermon today, I hope it launches us into something, not necessarily, um, uh, the, the subject that we're talking about today is not it's not like an in and of itself, it should launch us into a time of reflection, into a time of practicing what I'm about to say. So you might want to take some notes this morning, um, because what we're going to do at the end of the sermon, into, into our second set of worship, is we're going to do communion where we all stand up and take it together, give you a couple songs to gather um, communion and we'll take it together. But then we're going we're gonna to actually try to put into practice some of the stuff we're learning today. Um, a little nervous about it, but whatever. So... But it won't be weird. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read uh, a sample of chapter 14 just so you get the gist. It's really long. Paul's just making a giant argument um, here about what we're going to talk about. So let me give you a little sample of what was going on so we can launch into uh, this, morning's, this morning's teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is uh, a culture of love part two. We did part one about two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But let me read you chapter 14. Verse 1. Follow the way of love, Paul writes, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless you bring uh, revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make Um, Wait, I think I'm going too far. Am I? Oh, no, I'm not. Sorry. Verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction of notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? 
so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they might interpret what they say. Skip to verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three, uh, two or three at the most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Skip to verse 39. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Nervous yet? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your... Um, your church, this church, God, um, you, how you love this church and how I think we are here truly to be strengthened and built up. And I pray that everything that's done today would be to build one another up. There would no be, no, there'd be no showboating. There'd be no one here that um, tries to grab the attention. That everything would be done decently and in order. But also there'd be wonderful eruptions and manifestation of the Spirit's power and at work in this church. I submit my mind and my heart and my, and my, just my being to you and I ask that you would speak through me, anoint me, Lord. I can't do this in my own strength, in my own power. It's futile. And I pray, God, I, everything that's done today out of, out of uh, my, my mouth and out of the worship team and as we minister one another will be done in love. And so may the church be built up in love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, the longer that we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're almost done. We will do, uh, we're going to jump to chapter 16 next week and then jump back to chapter 15 for about four weeks and then we will conclude the book. But the longer that I'm in the letter of 1 Corinthians, I realize that our church is a lot, a lot like the church in Corinth. Even our cities are similar. Corinth was a progressive port town in the ancient Roman Empire. The city of Corinth was filled with diversity and had a reputation for its depravity. Whenever a Corinthian was depicted in a play or a Corinthian was, was in a play, they would always appear drunk. They would always show up on the play drunk. Not literally drunk, but playing a drunk. The city was highly metropolitan, was very independent, and very entrepreneurial. And there was a church in that city. There was a young, thriving church in that city. And this church was diverse. It was filled with people who were new to the faith. Actually, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions a swath of those who were at this church when he says this. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. That list is who made up the church. I absolutely love that list. 
It's a quite colorful bunch of people. But remember, it was a young church. And what happens in a young church, more so often than in in an old established church, but in a young church with an import of all new people, all new converts or different people from other churches, they import. Everyone comes in, brand new church, and everyone comes in and imports their ideas. Everyone comes in and imports their lifestyles, their culture, their attitudes. Some people come into the church, and in the culture of the church, they come in and they bring in what they think love is. They come into the church and they bring their culture of what they think spirituality is. They come in and they think what worship should look like. I get these emails quite often. And they have no Christian, or if they have no Christian culture, if the church is entirely new like Corinth was, they bring in what success looks like. So they probably learned that in university. They learned that from their family of origin. And they bring it into the church and like, well, I'm, uh, I'm a part of this church now and I've, I've just been baptized and I'm following Jesus and this is what success looks like. They think they import what interpersonal relationships, interpersonal relationships look like. They import what romantic relationships should be. And then they have these different ethics that influence all of this. See, the pastor really has his work cut out for him because what he's trying to do by the Spirit of God, is take all these different people from all these different places, from all these different families of origins, from all these different ethic places of ethics, and he's trying to get them to all together live into a new reality. And the new reality is that we are all one in Christ. And we are not all one in Christ on paper or in theory, but what the pastor is trying to do, what Pastor Paul here in the letter of 1 Corinthians is trying to do with Corinth is to live as if it was true, as if it were true that we are all one in Christ. To live among one another as if that were true. So what this whole letter in 1 Corinthians does, what Paul does to the church in Corinth, he's trying to do just that. He's trying to get everyone to live under this new reality that you are, your identity is now found in Christ and your life should be lived by love. One group of scholars put it this way. A significant part of the purpose of the letter of 1 Corinthians is to help the Corinthians gain a better grasp of their true identity and their true identity in Christ and reflect it in their behavior inside and outside the church. So the letter is written to to Corinth and it's like, this is who you are in Christ and this is how you should be living because of who you are in Christ. Another scholar says, and I've read this quote before, I think it's brilliant, I, I always try to bring it up every like three months. As former pagans... They brought to the Christian faith, pagans meaning before they were Christians, and they worshipped all kinds of other gods. As former pagans, they brought to the Christian faith a pagan worldview and an attitude toward ethical behavior. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging from a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. I'm going to read this again, but I'm going to put San Francisco in there just so you get the punch of what he's saying. As former pagans, they brought to the Christian faith a pagan worldview and attitude toward ethical behavior. Although they were the Christian church in San Francisco, an inordinate amount of San Francisco was yet in them. Or you can even say Americans. Though they were the church in America, an inordinate amount of America was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing you. This is what Corinth does. This is what the letter of Corinthians does. A radical amount of America or a radical amount of San Francisco, like a radical amount of individualism 
or independence or self-expression or wealth or power or influence is it needs to be removed from us without killing us. That's what this letter has been about. And for the last four chapters, from chapters 11 to 14, Paul has been on a tear about how the church gathers, what it should look like when the church comes together for worship. So we've been in a little mini-series here in Corinthians on how the church has a culture. And Paul is saying, this is what the church should look like. This is how the church should gather. And he uses one word to describe how the church should gather. One word to describe what it should look like. One word should dictate how the church gathers. One word should embody the express hopes and attitudes of the church. One word should rule and the church gathered. What is that one word? Love. Very good. Four of you were paying attention the last several weeks. I'm so proud. Well, love. Love is that word. Love should dictate everything. And Paul didn't make this up. It came from Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13. A new command I give to you, the church, love one another. Jesus is saying, you were ruled by all these commands. I'm going to give you a command that, that, that is the epitome of all the other commands. I'm going to give you a command that's going to rule your existence as, a, as my follower. It's to love one another. And I'm going to define that for you. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And then he says this, and I told you a couple weeks ago, I wish he never said this, but he did. By this, by this love, everyone will know that you are my followers if you love one another. What Jesus is saying there is, by the way that we love one another, not emotional love, this is not I, um, a love as, a, as an abstract idea, but how we, how, we, how we literally love one another and show love to each other is how San Francisco, how the Bay Area, how the world will know that we are followers of Jesus. It's the measure by which we are Christ's followers. But for most of us, love is an emotion. For most of us in America, love is a feeling. Have a confession. I love furniture. I have no idea why I love furniture. I don't know where it came from. Maybe from God himself, I think. But I love a well-designed chair. I don't know, I'm just, this confession. Or a well-designed lamp, if that might sound really weird. I mean, I love it. This last week, I was trying to explain the beauty of an Eames molded plywood chair to someone. I'm like, how beautiful, and they're, they're like, it's, it's small, it looks small and uncomfortable. I'm like, are you kidding me? It like perfectly cradles your body and has these sexy thick, I'll stop there, because it gets weird after that. <laughs> it's beautiful. They're like, I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't, I, I'm like, it was acknowledged as the best design of the 20th century. They're like, yeah, I'm over you. I don't even, I don't even know if I love you anymore. But my love for furniture is completely emotional. Completely emotional. And this is why. I can love something for like a year and then not like it anymore. And then I give it away. Like some of, every like collection of furniture that I've, I've taken, collected over years are scattered all over California, everywhere I've lived. Like I've liked it. And I liked it for a year and then I get rid of it. And my, uh, Ash, my wife, she says, why, why did you get rid of our couch? I'm like, I don't know. It just wasn't the one I wanted anymore. I'm... I gave it to so-and-so. Where'd you get rid of that? I'm like, I, my love for furniture is completely emotional. It's like I love it for a while and then I get rid of it. And this is how a lot of us treat people. This is how a lot of us treat one another. Not only is love an emotion to most of us and we end up treating human beings like the way I treat furniture, love is an idea. A lot of us are happy to have the right theology of love. 
You are just happy to know what love is, and that's it. You are just happy enough to know the theology of love, but do nothing with it. If I asked you, what do you believe about love? You, you would say, well, love is patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast and is not proud and is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, and love keeps no records of wrong. And then I would say, but are you patient and kind? Are, do you envy? Do you boast? Are you proud? Are you self-seeking? Are you easily angered? Do you keep no records of wrong? They're like, well, no, but I believe it. <laughs> we believe the right things about love, and with that, we're happy. I can teach a sermon on love, and you're like, that sermon on love, yes, that's the one. I'm like, are you doing it? No, but I know it. I know it in my head. Love is not an emotion. Love is not an idea. Love is a way. Love is a way. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love. Love is a way. Here's the difference. A way is based on action. A way is based on direction, not on thinking, not on feeling. For most of us, being a Christian means holding Christian ideas in our heads. What is a Christian? Well, I have all the right theology in my head. What I love about what Paul does here is he actually takes the language of the whole entire Christian movement and he applies it to love. Let me explain. In John 14, 6, Jesus said this, and it's a very popular uh, scripture. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. After Jesus died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, gave the gift of the Spirit to his followers, and they started ministry, Jesus' ministry started to be, to be known as the way. The language of the way is picked up in the early church, and it grows to become the label for the whole gospel of Christ. Let me give you a little survey, quick survey through Acts, to show you how this is true. Paul was said to be hunting anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, Acts 9.2. He confessed that he persecuted this way to his death, Acts 22.4. Apollos, who was another early church leader, knew something of the way of the Lord, Acts 18.25, but Aquila and Priscilla, also church leaders, took him aside and explained him the way of God more fully, Acts 18.26. In Ephesus, opponents spoke evil of the way, Acts 19.9, and later there arose a great commotion about the way, Acts 19.23. Before the governor, Paul explained that he worshipped the God of his fathers according to the way, which they, call now, they now call a sect, Acts 24.14. And after Paul's explanation, Felix had a more accurate knowledge of the way, Acts 24, 22. The way grows in the early church and then becomes a label of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity itself. At that time in the book of Acts, people, Christians, were not necessarily called Christians. They were called followers of the way. See, when you describe Christianity as the way, it suggests a journey of transformation. It suggests steps and actions. By contrast, you can embrace a system of belief and never mature. You can fine-tune all your doctrines. You can fine-tune all your beliefs and never live those beliefs out. Christianity is not a belief system. Christianity is a way. And what Paul does here is he hijacks that language and he calls love a way. You can fine-tune your theology of love. You can have the right answers about love. You can even write songs about love. But if you are not following the way of love, you do not have love. Love is a way. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. 
Love, in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It is a state, it is a state not of feelings, but of the will. I love that. Love is not a, it's not a statement of feelings, it's of the will. That state of the will, which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is that we naturally walk in the way of love by loving ourselves. We provide for ourselves. And I'm not talking an inordinate, messed up love for ourselves, but in a way that we care for ourselves. We, 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 we provide for ourselves. We care for ourselves. We feed ourselves. We cleanse ourselves. We, we try to live the, the best way for ourselves. What Christian love is, is doing that toward other people. Others we might not feel inclined to emotionally love, but we walk in the way of love with them anyway. That's what Christian love is. Without this way of love, no matter how spiritual you think you are, you are nothing. The Christian life is one of a way of love. Paul says it like this. Taking the things Corinth loves to do, he says, if you're not doing these things out of a way of love, you may think you're spiritual, but you're not. One of the things that Corinth loved to do was to speak in tongues. One of the things Corinth loved to do was, was to prophesy. One of the things San Francisco loves to do is help the poor. And what Paul does, he takes all those markers of what they think true spirituality is, and he says, if you do those things and you don't do them in the way of love, it is nothing. It is self-seeking. He says it like this, we read a couple weeks ago. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I speak in tongues, and if I have a, I have a gift of tongues that seems a little bit like um, another language, or if you're hyper-spiritual, you speak in the tongues of angels. Can you imagine you speaking angel? <laughs> like, what tongue do you have? The angel one? Like, what do you have? I have Russian. Oh, I have the angel one. So, Trump, I, you know. And Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men, or if I have this supernatural language of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, more on that in a second, and I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can tell a mountain to move, and it does, and I do not have love, I am nothing. And here's one that San Francisco loves. If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Now keep in mind that this is a letter of correction. Paul is not at a wedding ceremony. He goes, okay, let me read um, from my favorite part of the Bible um, right now. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a wedding ceremony. It's not marriage love. What Paul is doing, he's correcting a church. He's like, you guys, when you guys gather together, there's no love. Guys, love is everything. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not boast. It does not envy. He's going into this because he's correcting them. They're not loving. They think they are. They think they're so spiritual. And Paul says the essence of spirituality is love and you're not loving each other. When they gathered as a church, love was absent, even though the church seemed really spiritual. This is so scary. You can go to a church and like, oh my gosh, spirit of God was there. Like people were doing things and people were like singing out loud and clapping in their hands in the air and they're on the carpets and they were speaking in these foreign languages that I'd never even heard of before. Everyone was. It was so spiritual. And Paul walked in there and goes, but there wasn't any love. Therefore, you weren't spiritual at all. Now this is what was going on in Corinth. One of the things that Corinth loved to do when they gathered for church was to speak in tongues. Now let me explain what this is because you might be new to the faith 
and you have no idea what tongues are. Or you might come from a charismatic background. We have a lot of charismatic people. Where are you at? No, don't, don't, I'm just joking. You're like, yeah, ask me. Um, we know where you're at. Um, if charismatic background, you guys know what tongues are. You're like, yeah, I, 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 I do that. Um, and then some of us are you. I'm, I'm more from a charismatic background, but some, a lot of, of the people at our church are from a very, more, a more, uh, more non-charismatic, um, traditional, I don't even know what to say without offending anyone in this room, <laughs> but not, not that. And, uh, and it freaks you out. Like, okay, hey, tongues is gonna be weird. I'm leaving right after the sermon. Um, <laughs> let me explain what tongues are. This is where, this is where we get a, a New Testament understanding of tongues. Acts chapter two. Um, this was after... Christ uh, died, he rose from the grave, he gathered his disciples, he uh, told them, um, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you receive power, and then you go everywhere, all over the world, and spread the gospel. So they're, they're waiting, they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. They don't know what it's going to look like, they don't know what it's going to be. Verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday celebrating the giving of the law, and so Jews from all over um, uh, the, the ancient Near East would come over to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this feast. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, all together meaning the disciples that, that Jesus left there to wait for the Holy Spirit. They were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came up from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that, rest, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this, the Holy Spirit came, and then it was like a tongue of fire. You can, don't think of like um, a tongue, like, like a tongue and then it's on fire. Don't think of that. That's weird. Um, just think of like a flame, okay? A flame of fire over everyone's head. And then you saw like flames over everyone's head, and then everyone just started speaking. And they were speaking a language they did not have before. Like a language was downloaded into their minds, and they were speaking. But check this out. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven because it was that feast that everyone was gathering around. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So people from all over the world were there, all over the known world were there, and they all spoke different languages, and they came together and these disciples were all speaking their language. Like, how'd you know my language? And how'd you know my language? And how'd you know my language? You don't even speak my language. It was a gift. Tongues are a language, a language that is foreign to the speaker and given by God. Tell me if that's not a cool spiritual manifestation. That's cool. It's like I'm given a different language that I didn't even have to study to get. Like I got downloaded from the matrix, like I need Italian, and then boom, I, like, I, I don't know how to speak Italian. But just, do the thing, I don't know. Now what are tongues for? Now what are they for? That's what, a tongue, that's what tongues are, but what are tongues for? They're not so you can ask for the bathroom in a foreign country. Like God, I need to give tongues, you tell them, I ask them where this, no, that's not what tongues are for. Here's a working definition of tongues. Tongues are a form of prayer and praise. This is so important. Tongues are a form of prayer and praise you express to God in a language that you do not understand. Tongues are, are, are directed towards God in a language that you don't understand and God understands them. Now, this is how Paul says it. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They, are, they utter mysteries by the Spirit. So someone can come in here and speak in a tongue, and then everybody's like, I think amen, maybe amen. Like, I don't know what you're saying, so I can't amen it, really, but that's cool. And then it's, it's a prayer to God. It's praise to God. 
Tongues are languages unknown to the speaker, but directed to God as praise and prayer. Tongues are great. The church in Corinth loved the gift of tongues, but they believed, like some churches still today believe, that tongues are the height and the epitome of spirituality. They thought if you don't speak in tongues, then you are not spiritual. They thought if you do speak in tongues and you speak in tongues a lot, then you are very spiritual. Now, what are the benefits of speaking in tongues? Paul says in verse four, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. So this is what tongues do. You don't understand tongues, but this is not inherently bad. Edifying yourself in this context is not inherently bad. So you would speak in a tongue. You wouldn't know how to pray. And then you would start to pray in tongues and you don't know what you're praying, but when you're doing it, it's like God is, is it's, it's a beautiful way to pray to God. It's like, I don't know what to pray. The spirit gives you language that you don't know you even had and you're praying to God, but you don't know what you're saying, but you're still getting that emotional feeling of edification when you're in a really good prayer meeting. Have you ever woke up in the morning or whenever you do your, your prayer and, you, and some, some days prayer is just prayer. Like you are praying to God, you're doing this, but some days it's like God's right there. And you're being edified. You're like, oh my gosh, you, you come out of your, your prayer time, you're like, I could, I could change the world right now. <laughs> like you float out, of, it's like that. It edify, you edify yourself and that's, that's awesome. But here's the problem. There's three problems with uninterpreted tongues in a gathered church that Paul points out. Three problems. It's great at home in your prayer. It's great in a prayer meeting as you're just praying, edifying yourself. But with the, when the church is gathered like this, this is three problems why, uh, that, that, that uninterpreted tongues have. One, no one knows what you're saying. That's a problem. Two, it looks really spiritual. That could be a problem. Three, it only has to do with you. That's a problem. And this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. They would gather and everyone would just start speaking in tongues out loud. And it looked so spiritual. Because if I was up here and I started speaking in tongues, you'd go, whoa, he's spiritual. If God gives you a tongue that you did not know, a language that you did not know before I walked on stage, wow, you're, you're a spiritual person. The other reason what they were doing, it feels good to the person speaking because the tongue edifies yourself. So you go to church, you start speaking in tongues, no one knows what you're saying, but you feel really good about it. But nothing would be accomplished at church because no one knew what the heck people were saying. Nothing would be accomplished because no one would hear from God. Tongues are prayer. They're praise to God in a language that no one knows. You don't even know what you're saying. And what happened? And what happened in Corinth was tongues became self-indulgent religiosity. Tongues became self-indulgent religiosity. Tongues became a way of them going, I'm so, it's, oh, I love church. I love it for me. I'm doing this thing. I'm so spiritual. I'm so religious. Hey, how, how, is, how is your time to, uh, at church today? Oh, I don't know. I spoke in all kinds of tongues today. I think I even spoke in an angel tongue. It was awesome. And, and it was, that was what, well, do you feel, you feel good about yourself? Yeah. How, so was the church built up? I don't know. I was. Was anyone encouraged? I don't know. I was. That's how Corinth was using them. It was pure individualism. And, and, and it became a form of self-centeredness, all cloaked in spirituality. Now, I'm going to back up and say that again because I think this is a good warning for this church. It might be healing balm for your soul 
because you've seen this in a church. And I hope you didn't see it in this church, but if you did, I want to speak to that. Church became about pure individualism, a form of self-centeredness, all cloaked in spirituality. It looked really spiritual, but it wasn't. Their gathered church became a religion that brings individual satisfaction, but helps no one else in the room. It became about th- themselves, but no, they didn't care about anyone else that filled that room. I think this can happen in other ways as well. I think a possible equivalent to the problems of tongues in Corinth today would be our problem with consumerism. I think the results can be the same. Because we live in a very consumerist culture, our commitment to a local church becomes what I can get out of the church. I go to church because what I get out of the church. I like how the music makes me feel. I like how the pastor makes me feel. And the spirituality becomes about me and what I get out of it. I'm a consumer. And then I switch churches when their goods and services don't meet my needs anymore. Their religious goods and services aren't there up to par. There's like this new thing going on down the street and that one, whoa. Spirit's really moving there. Notice I'm saying this because it's starting to get packed in here. And, um, Because I'm not going to two services, so I'll say this. This happens a lot, a lot in the church. Because we're so consumer-driven, the church itself can be hundreds of people in a single room trying to get an individual spiritual high. Like just 1,300 people pack into a room and like, I just want this spiritual high. I just want... I want, my, I want to practice my own brand of private spirituality, and this is what this church gives me. But that's not the purpose of the gathered church. So Paul uses another spiritual manifestation, another gift, to explain what the purpose of the church is. And to that he says, everyone should prophesy. Verse 4, verse four anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul says that the best gift you can have in the gathered church is prophecy because it edifies the church. Now, what is prophecy? Now, let me just say this. Before I get into the definition, prophecy isn't necessarily predicting the future. So I don't want anyone standing up and saying, there's the big earthquakes coming to San Francisco, and it's 2014. No, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. It's not prophecy of Jesus coming back this day, this hour. That's not, that's not the prophecy. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Here's what prophecy is. Prophecy is a phenomenon that results directly from the access the Holy Spirit has to our minds, whereby he can create pictures in our imagination and supernatural dreams while we are asleep. He can put words, ideas, or scriptures into our heads with such force that we know that there is something weighty and unforgettable going on, something that carries with it the responsibility to pass on and relay what the Holy Spirit has communicated. That is a beautiful definition of prophecy. And this edifies the church. What this is, is that you get this impression, this spontaneous impression, whether the church, when the church is gathered and the community group's gathered, we're like, God has a, has, I, I believe God might have a word for the church. I believe God might have a word for this person. I believe God might have a word for this group. You might get a word of prophecy for the church. And if that happens, please come tell us. I have, we've been given lots of words of prophecy and, and we, we just test them. We see, we just wait on them and go, Lord, is that true? Sometimes it's, I remember this one, I don't know if I shared this. This one time, a couple of months ago, um, 
I, I, like to, um, I like to tinker with things. I just, I, it just feels like nothing's ever set. Like, oh, I want everything to always be getting better. And we were, we were looking at community groups for 2014. And I'm sitting down with our community group staff, and I'm thinking, okay, we should tweak this. We should get this better. What if we knock this? What if we did this differently? What if we did all, Like, I'm doing all these things. And community groups are so healthy right now. They're, they're just, you guys, as you guys are living in the community, it's beautiful to watch. Beautiful. And to be a part of, by the way. And then after church one Sunday, someone walks up to me. She was, um, she was from Reality in, in Santa Barbara. And uh, um, she walks up to me. I, I believe I have a word for you, Dave. Um, and and I, have, I have a scripture as well. And the word is this, is that um, what, what I told you I would do through the community of this church, I'm doing. Just don't mess with it. That's what she said. Don't mess with it. And I was like, I like turned like pale. I'm like... And then she gave me the scripture, and I, and, I, and I wrote it down, and, and I told the staff the next day, and they all clapped. Like, yay, God spoke. <laughs> Stop messing things up. That, that, it's a beautiful picture of, uh, of, of, of prophecy. Like, that's what I need. That was so encouraging to me. Because I'm like, okay, they're not, they're not the way I want. I want them to be this. I want them to do that. And she's like, just, God just told me, basically, calm down and stop messing things up. Okay? Just sit back. And, and this is, God does this to the church. God does this in the community groups. God does this. It's, it's, it's beautiful when God does this. And how does it edify the church? This is how, verse 3, Paul says this. The one who prophesies speaks to people. Do you see the difference between tongues and prophecy? Tongue speaks to God. Prophecy speaks to people. One who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. If prophecy is used right, the result is people being stronger in their faith and in their walk with Christ. This gift of prophecy is not so much about predicting the future, but speaking directly to the present situations that people are in. My wife was at, um, two weeks ago, it was our women's retreat, two weeks ago. Awesome. Like, um, stories I'm hearing from that, like, women's retreats, I think, are more spiritual than pastor retreats, just saying. And the stories that my wife was telling me about the, the, the women's retreat, and we had just gone to a retreat of all of reality's staff um, and key leaders, all, reality-wide, all, all our churches. And then my wife and I went to a marriage um, retreat, and then she went right into a, um, a, a uh, women's retreat. So my wife, she doesn't mind me telling, me this, telling you this because I told her I was. She said, whatever. Um, she's, I mean, you know, she's an introvert. She doesn't like uh, retreats and people and groups like really make her nervous. She went to three in two weeks. And it was like, it was the most godly thing that she probably could have ever done, like obeying God, I'll do this. And what happened was at the women's retreat, there was a time where the, the women, after one of the sessions, got together in groups of like four or five or six or whatever, and they would just wait on God for one person in that group. And like, what does God want to speak to that person? And, all, and in my wife's group, they all took out like sticky notes and they wrote down stuff. And they did that with every woman. And my wife told me with, with like extreme emotion that four women in the group heard the same passage of scripture. I mean, they were just, they would just wait and they'd write, and they were all, after that, all share. So they all had it, they weren't like cheating off the other person, okay? <laughs> like, what are you, okay, yeah, that too. All, all the women in that group, like, uh, given a passage, four women given the same passage of scripture, and then another one was given a picture, an image of that passage, what that passage of scripture was. Like, they didn't go to the, like, I just got this image, this was the image. All of it having directly been, been dealing with directly something that God was working and speaking to my wife 
for a while. And it, I've never seen my wife so encouraged, like so empowered, so like God, God spoke to me. Like all these things that I hear when I'm alone with my Bible and journal, like they're real. Like he really is doing this. Prophecy can happen in sermon form. A sermon can be prophetic. But what Paul is talking about here is not communication to the church that's like cold theology or a Bible study. It's personal communication. That one hears from God and, and, and God burdens them to tell someone else or the church as a whole. Like you might not even know the person. Like I explained to you guys like four weeks ago of something that happened in the church. Could be a scripture like God's putting the scripture on my mind and it's this. This is why prophecy is so valued. It's valued because prophecy flows out of a deep concern for the well-being of those who need to be strengthened and encouraged and comforted. And Paul says prophecy rules in the church, not tongues. Tongues are good, but not in the gathered church unless there's an interpreter because no one knows what you're saying. And the purpose of the gathered church is that we might be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. And the reason why this gift above all should be exercised in the church is that it assumes that the people that fill the church on any given day are people who need to be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. Paul assumes that's what we need. Paul assumes everyone that's gathered in your church, they need to be encouraged, they need to be strengthened, they need to be comforted. I think that's why people still go to church today. Even if the church has fell on hard times, people still feel weak, no matter how much power, influence, and education you have. People still feel discouraged, no matter, no matter how many things you accomplish in life. People are still depressed, no matter how many friends, followers, or stuff you acquire. And people like this fill this room. We need strength, encouragement, and comfort. In a word, what we are all looking for is love. And this is why Paul says, right after the love chapter, he goes, let there be prophecy. You know why? Because prophecy accomplishes what love accomplishes. It builds up, it strengthens, and it encourages. That love is embodied and has come down in Christ, who is the perfect expression and embodiment of love. As we have taken that love in as a church, we are to love others. If you have received the love of Christ, the unconditional love of Jesus, we are to then share that, embody that, be that to other people. We need this in the church. That's why we need prophecy. That's why we need to be in here. And as we are going to go into our second set of worship and our time of response to God, we're going to wait on God to give us encouragement and strength and comfort this morning. All of that, all of that points, all of that embodies, all that shows that there's a God who's present now, that loves us right now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church and I, I know, Spirit, uh, you, that you're alive in this church. I know that you've been moving. I know that, um, and I also know that right now people might be nervous but I pray, God, we would, uh, we would be strengthened today. We all need to hear from you, God. All of us do. There's so much more that can be said about this, but I pray right now that we would, with the knowledge that we have, begin to operate and move into this. We pray for the people on our right and our left that they would be encouraged 
and that, God, you might use us to encourage them. Those who are right and our left, that they be strengthened and you might use us to strengthen them. We pray, God, that you would have your way here. Pray that as we do things decently and in order, we pray that there would be a great framework for you to move powerfully in our midst. We are not looking for self-edification. We want the whole body to be built up this morning. The whole thing. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.